Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Fit podcast, where it's my job to help you apply knowledge that is both scientific and practical into your own life to maximize your physique development and your overall body, as well as your mind. The combination of these two things is what makes you Beyond Fit. Hi guys, this is Jake Parker back on the Beyond Fit podcast. My guest today is Dr. Eric Helms. He's coming to us from New Zealand. Um, As far as his bio, it is pretty diverse, but you're an athlete. You've competed in natural bodybuilding, um, strength, uh, sorry, powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman, I believe. Has got his PhD in strength and conditioning and is one of the 3DMJ coaches as well as an author. So did I miss anything there, Eric? No, that's fantabulous. Yeah, that's good Good to go, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, my first question here is just very general, but I always like to kind of discuss, you know, what started you out in this journey? Obviously, you've been a polymath of sorts in the strength training, weightlifting game, but at what age did you start to become interested in all this stuff? And it, did you start from kind of a scientific perspective or were you just kind of like me, like you were a 13, 14 year old that kind of got obsessed with weightlifting just because you wanted to get bigger and stronger? Yeah. So, I mean, polymath almost makes it sound like I'm good at all the things I do. <laughs> I would say a jack of all trades might okay. be a, a better description. <laughs> um, and it was, it was relatively late. And, you know, if you start at 13 or 14, that's awesome. I didn't start consistently lifting until I was 21. Um, Before that, I really didn't even like it. I had no desire to do it. And when I did do it, it was like brief periods for track and field when I ran in high school and, um, you know, got a hair up my ass and a friend of mine asked me to go to the gym. I did it for a little bit and I thought this is stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, So for, 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 for me, it took uh, going through a relatively tough patch in life and needing some kind of outlet that was healthy. Um, and then that went from being a more obsessive experience to something that became much more positive. And then I kind of, you know, vacillated between those two extremes. Uh, like, like most people, when I first decided, you know, I'm, I'm like pretty strong for the people in my gym. I've developed a pretty good physique for people in my gym. And well, I should say for most competitive people, and I want to take it further. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that resulted in me competing in powerlifting and then natural bodybuilding in 06 and 07. And since then, um, and the formation of 3d muscle journey was born out of taking it too far, being too extreme and having it be a negative impact on life mm-hmm. rather than figuring out how to integrate it. Um, now the, the scientific side of it, I think for me, it's just always come down to having a bit of that obsessive extreme nature and just trying to figure out what's the best way to do it. Um, and lifting is something that I absolutely just fell in love with. Uh, so experientially, uh, as far as what it did for me as an outcome, uh, and then it became my intellectual pursuit and my career. So I began as a trainer in 05, mm-hmm. um, too early, like most of us who start lifting weights. <laughs> and, uh, you know, fast forward to today, and, you know, I got the bio that you, you read, and I've competed in um, pretty much everything that even resembles a strength sport, because um, I just love finding new ways to, to experience the Iron game. Um, so anyway, yeah, man, I I would say that that's kind of my story, I guess you could say. Um, it's definitely been something that has, uh, fundamentally changed who I am as far as going through contest prep and having, uh, you know, the adversities we all have in life and using lifting as an outlet for that has, uh, has opened up new possibilities for me to grow as a person. So it's something that I like to pay forward. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about beginning lifting, uh, when you're about 21, how long was it until you competed in 06, 07? So uh, let's see, I was 21 in 2004. So I had been lifting for two years when I did my first powerlifting meet, uh, just almost on the dot. And then, and that was a push pull, so no squat. Uh, and then I did my first bodybuilding season in 07. I stepped on stage for the first time in May. So it had been just about three years of lifting. Uh, before I got on uh, a natural bodybuilding stage. Mm -hmm. See, one of the reasons I'm curious is because I've always been interesting in competing in bodybuilding, but just 
there's there's a couple things that kind of hold me back and make me make me unsure and that's number one like well I'm trying to build this coaching business is like my number one goal right now. And I think that, you know, one of the things I've always been very cognizant of and aware of is like something you guys talked about, which was even, I believe just the last episode of the, or maybe two episodes ago on the uh, 3DMJ podcast and just the psychological and the physical uh, ramifications of competing in bodybuilding. And I kind of worry, you know, I want all my wits about me and I want to be mentally sharp and I want to be emotionally sharp as much as I can while I'm building this business because the entrepreneurial journey is so up and down. But then the other thing is I kind of have always just told myself, you know, oh, you know, I want to spend really a good two, three, four years with, you know, long-term periodization and programming, really trying to put on more muscle before I ever do that. Because I've always sort of been aware of the fact that, and I know that this is not, um, this is something that probably gets a little bit too much acclaim, but definitely my genetics are such that it's hard to put on muscle quickly. And so I'm really just focused on this long-term game. But do you think that looking back, you are happy that you kind of jumped into it relatively quickly as far as competing or do you like was that part of the learning process for you or do you wish that you could go back and tell yourself certain things that you know now um that's always a funny question would i have told myself things i learned now of course you know i would love to have had the experience i have now before i had the experience that i have now Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um but at the same time i I only got the experience i have now from doing what i did so it's this kind of uh, chicken or egg uh, quantum mechanics crazy time travel story. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think to, to, so to, to kind of address the two thoughts you had, I think they're both very valid. Um, and it is no doubt that bodybuilding takes extreme focus, just like any hard goal, mm-hmm. but it also comes with a specific toll related to being semi-starved by the time right. you do it and, and needing to fight all, all of your, your natural body instincts. So um, that, that of course will take a toll and there's, there's no way around that. You know, that's something we like to say a lot that, you know, life doesn't stop for bodybuilding and attempting to make it do so is typically the wrong way to do the sport. Um, there's going to be sacrifices involved, but truly learning how to integrate it is, is the goal. Um, and I don't think it's at all a bad idea for you to go, you know what, I want to focus on building my business first. And once mm-hmm. that's stable, then I'll consider competing. Um, something that I would have done differently in hindsight was in my 2011 season, I was in the middle of applying for my second master's, finishing my first master's, teaching 30 hours a week, being a 3DMJ coach, and also personal training all at the same time. And I literally had about two hours to the day where I was not doing something. Um, and I think I, I kept it together really, really well, and I did a good job considering everything. Um, but there were certainly uh, the, the level of effort that required and the number of balls I was juggling uh, was challenging at times. And it was something I told myself I wasn't going to do again. And that's why it was until it wasn't until 2019 that I got back on stage after my 2011 season, because uh, I was pursuing my doctorate, my second master's. So I don't, I think that's wise. I, I think, um, I think that that's a very good thing to, to, to be cognizant of, of, of t- is taking bodybuilding seriously as, as something that, that is going to impact your life. As far as needing to build a certain amount of muscle, like obviously you don't want to be the person who's never lifted weights and be like, you know what? I should get on stage. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, um, the first time you compete, the goal should be to compete. Mm-hmm. And that's it, you know, to get the experience, to see if it's something you like and enjoy, if you want to do again and not be worried about your placing, just see what, what can you do and what can you learn from the process? Um, I went into my first season without expectations in that regard. Um, even though I did have the lofty goal of eventually turning pro and competing at the pro level. And, you know, I had the, the idea that one day I'd win my Mr. Natural Olympia. I think at the mm-hmm. time uh, that, that was what I was focused on. Now it's more like, you know, placed in WMBF worlds, but, but nonetheless, um, I did have the, uh, fortunately I had the maturity to understand that it was almost arrogant to expect me to blow everybody away in my, in my first season. And I didn't have, you know, delusional, uh, ideas of, of, of what I had. And it's, it's almost a waste to spend like 15 years lifting weights, build as much muscle as you can and then compete mm-hmm. because you won't get shredded your first time or you won't pose well, or you won't peak right. Um, or you'll give the judges a difficult decision because you'll look like an amateur in terms of the way you present yourself, but you'll have the physique of a pro. Mm-hmm. And that is always something like 
a, a panel of pro bodybuilders who have spent years posing and presenting themselves and peaking and fine tuning their stuff. They don't want to give somebody who doesn't look like a pro on stage in how they carry themselves a pro card. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so I do think your first season just needs to be like, let me just see if this is for me mm -hmm. and I'll do the best I can. Um, but, but not put so much pressure on extrinsic outcomes yeah. uh, on yourself would be my advice. Yeah. And the other thing is like, I try to be as self-aware as possible, but I think self-awareness is one of those things. Like the better you think you are at it, the more you might just be hiding things from yourself where, you know, I say all this stuff, but I know that there's a part of me that's also like, I, I look forward to the end result, but I don't necessarily look forward to how hard the process, you know, I know it'll be extremely hard. And so I know that there's at least some part of me that's just like, geez, I'm kind of scared to take on this much of a challenge. Although it's not like mm -hmm. overwhelming, like I can see how I kind of have this, like these, you know, places where, you know, your, your brain kind of makes up stories. Oh, well, I can't be expected to do that while I'm doing this. Because at some point I have to realize that, you know, I'm only 25 right now. I aspire to have a family and do other things like that someday. And so, you know, is, do I just go from, oh, well, it's, it's business time. Oh, it's family time. And there's never competing bodybuilding. I understand that part of it is just something I always try to preach to clients and friends and, and people is that you sometimes you just have to get into action and learn from your action, just kind of like you were speaking to. You can't necessarily always quantify why, you know, these people are, are so good at bodybuilding or so good at prepping or whatever it is. And maybe they can't articulate it, but you just learn certain things about yourself and about your body. Absolutely. I think um, part of being a resilient adult um, is understanding that while you can be quite comfortable feel safe, uh, make progress, think, learn. When you have a stable environment and you're in your quote unquote comfort zone, um, that also has the double-edged sword effect of making you less capable of handling things that don't fit within that quote unquote comfort zone. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the proverbial cave where the bear goes to hibernate. A cave's great. It's a place you can hibernate and hibernation is very important. Um, but if someone walked up to you and found your cave and had a knife, we're eating bear meat for dinner, mm -hmm. right? So um, I think the realities of life at some point for everyone to varying degrees and with very, very different circumstances, you're going to get thrown a curveball. And if uh, you, you have never been exposed to that before, that will really shake you. Uh, and I think a big part of building self-efficacy is instead of trying to plan for everything and having the ability to predict and succeed because of those plans, that is important, don't get me wrong, uh, but you also need to be able to succeed and have the self-efficacy and belief that you can succeed in the face of adversity and things you don't expect. So I think exactly, I mean, you're, you're, so what I learned from what you said is you're human. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're not sure if you can succeed in the face of a very difficult challenge. And succeeding in the face of difficult challenges that you're not sure you can tackle is what changes people. Mm -hmm. uh, that is that like, like my own personal story, uh, that I mentioned earlier, where I think it changed me fundamentally. That may be an exaggeration. There's no way for me to really measure that, but that's my experience. Uh, the person I was before, um, I got thrown some pretty harsh curveballs in the midst of contest preps and continued and succeeded while also dealing with my personal life exploding, um, taught me that I'm much stronger than I thought I was. So I think that you're exactly right. Um, and uh, it, it's something that is going to come your way in life, uh, whether you plan for it or not. So, so why, why not at least know that it's coming, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as far as that specific experience, is there anything, I guess, kind of two different questions. Is there any one thing that you can point to that really helped carry you through that tough experience? And, or is there one thing that you had to implement during that, that just came about in one of those, um, you know, learning um, learning by necessity sort of things where, you know, you had to pick up a mindfulness practice or you had to pick up a way to better juggle relationships or anything like that was, that was beyond just the sport that you integrated into your life or that you carried through that, that point. Uh, yeah. I mean, most of the time when something devastating happens in your life, uh, the echoes and the effects are related to interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, whether that is you needing to find a support system, someone to talk to, uh, or you being negatively affected and needing to speak to your significant others and loved ones because that is impacting them. Uh, and understanding 
their reflections because your self-awareness is compromised because of the emotional strain you're under. Uh, you're not aware of the impact of your actions. So that communication improves your own ability to view yourself. Uh, you can also then communicate to them what you're dealing with, get better support, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can, um, I, I think essentially uh, with humans being social creatures and operating in a society, anytime someone undergoes something like that, an absolutely key piece is improving your communication abilities. And that was a big part of, uh, of, of, of what I, what I learned um, and what I had to build upon to deal with, with all that. So, yeah. Um, in addition to that, I, I'd, I'd like you to touch a little bit more on, you talk about um, the, the piece of 3DMJ that is so much more than just the physicality and the sports side of bodybuilding into the realm of just what I call total health. If there's, if there's two questions that come up almost as a staple in this podcast that I always ask, it's the first one about what got people interested. I'm always interested in that, um, in just weightlifting or whatever their specific endeavor is. And then just how you would define total health and how that's important to you, like the integration of the relationships and um, just mental stillness, emotional resiliency, all those sort of things. And how does that relate into your um, coaching and into your business? Sure. Yeah. So I think... Uh having been in and around the sport of natural bodybuilding and also having friends on the, on the enhanced side, um, but not being nearly as experienced or integrated in that, that community. Um, you typically see one of two directions that people take, uh, when they are getting more heavily involved in competitive bodybuilding. Um, and that is either finding a way to integrate into their lives and doing what we're talking about or, because they haven't succeeded in the way they want to or they, and or they become more obsessive is trying to put bodybuilding in, on an island inside of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and the latter um, goes great if you happen to have like the genetics of the gods and, you know, you can be the person who has a home in, you know, Las Vegas. So you can, you know, drive five minutes to go compete in the Olympia and you have a mm -hmm. supplement sponsor and, and you're winning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. But that's like two people in bodybuilding Every year, you know, so um, what happens much more often is the people who take that fork in the road end up burning out, quitting the sport, having it negatively affect their lives, or uh, and, and then they're done, or they then go that was the wrong fork and double back and go the other way. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing you can you can say for anyone who's competitively bodybuilding for a long time is they found some level of homeostasis. And compromise so that it works integrated with their life. It may not be the life you want to live. It may not be a life uh, that you respect necessarily in all cases, uh, but they found some way for it to work. And it probably at some point previously didn't. Um, so a huge part of what we do, the reason why 3D Muscle Journey is not like, you know, optimalphysiques.com or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> is because it's not just about getting people shredded and muscular. Um, you know, that's a huge part of what we do. And that's a huge part of what I've studied and, uh, you know, what I obsess over every day. But because the largest threat to a bodybuilder staying in the sport is essentially an existential threat to being a bodybuilder competitively, um, that, that proverbial fork in the road that leads to no longer being one, um, that's what you have to address. So we think of how do we fully help someone integrate this into their life so they feel as though they have agency in the sport rather than being a victim to it. Uh, I can't tell you how often people find themselves uh, in these cut bulk cycles, you know, in season, off season, that's really kind of uh, the horse is riding them rather than riding the horse. Mm -hmm. You know, they are essentially going through yo-yo dieting rather than planned in seasons and off seasons. Uh, they gain far too much weight because of a disordered relationship with food in the off season. And once they no longer can stand what they look like in the mirror, it's time to do a prep again. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that becomes an aggressive, hardcore process because the off-season was out of control. And then the pendulum swings back and forth until it just knocks them off the platform completely. So that is not what we want people to experience. Um, that can be exacerbated by all kinds of things like the, the, the culture, your emphasis, whether you're intrinsically motivated, extrinsically motivated whether you're also throwing, uh, you know, pharma pharmacological agents in the mix. Mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons why we're a natural bodybuilding organization. It's not some moralistic stance of, uh, of drugs. It's not 
uh, a legality thing. It's more so just, hey, we're, find, we're trying to find a way to integrate this into life. And that is far harder and far rarer when you're talking about, you know, heavy PED use. Mm -hmm. So what we try to teach our athletes and what we've learned ourselves, both uh, in the hard way for everyone involved in 3DMJ, um, is that you need to take that, that first fork in the road and you need to consider what does life look like as a bodybuilder who's able to integrate it? And mm -hmm. then everything else comes out of that. So that's kind of the constraints we initially apply to the long-term uh, career development of a bodybuilder. And then everything else falls in place after that. So things that, you know, make the candle burn bright, but not burn as long are things that we don't recommend, you know, even though they might be uh, popular or scientifically uh, validated or something that a lot of the, the pros are currently doing and trust me mm -hmm. they won't be doing it in a few months anyway but you know whatever is quote-unquote hot and i think that is uh, th those are trends that that are in the fitness industry those are trends that are in the, the like the, the health and mindfulness industry all that stuff so it's really just kind of taking a more long-term uh, quote-unquote sustainable career uh, orientation towards the sport and that's probably how i i, I would uh suggest that there's an integration with health and, and with, with life and therefore health. Mm -hmm. And how would you define that when you say the word agency, what exactly does that look like to you or a client per se? Yeah. So I think uh, agency, if we, if we talk about uh, what's called self-determination theory or what's called SDT, um, there is basically, this is a pretty well proven theory of how humans find meaning uh, and how humans find happiness and purpose in life. And it's a combination of autonomy, uh, competence, and what's called relatedness. And uh, really what that means is that you feel as though you're in charge of your goals. That's autonomy. Um, and that's obviously ties into agency, that this is you riding the horse, not the horse riding you. Competence, that you're actually seeing improvement. That there's movement towards uh, you becoming better at whatever you're doing. And then finally, relatedness, that you are understood, that you have a community. So um, it's very easy to see how uh, a, a purely outcome-based, uh, you know, like extrinsic reward, optim optimize everything mindset uh, can leave out some of those, those aspects. It mm -hmm. kind of basically focuses on competence, indirect, indirectly gets you some, some agency because it's telling you what to do, um, but can actually take away autonomy if you do it in such a way that doesn't pay respect to the fact that you are a human who still operate, op, operates under the umbrella of this overall theory. Um, so, you know, isolating bodybuilding from your life is essentially like negative relatedness, you know, if you think about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, and then that has echoes into everything else, which can reduce your, 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 your autonomy when you don't feel like you have uh, emotional control. And eventually you start to not pay respect to the part of you that wants other things. Most bodybuilders, the biggest struggles they have are post-competition when they feel a pull in two different directions. One is the human in them that is semi-starved that is saying, I just want to eat and that's all I care about and I don't want to crush myself anymore. Mm -hmm. I've been operating under this suppressive willpower force for the last six months. And the other part is saying, awesome, I want to have a really good off season. I want to slowly gain some, some body fat back, you know, maintain, you know, good healthy eating patterns, start eating more, build my muscle. And next thing you know, you're going through a binge purge cycle of excessive exercise and making up for binges that happened. And you spend, you know, half the year in this weird yo-yo dieting, mini cutting, binging, really so optimal for bodybuilding outcome. Mm -hmm. So that's the type of thing that, uh, that can happen when you try to look to just maximize external outputs. And it actually doesn't even end up maximizing external outputs. Uh, like, for example, an extreme reverse diet. It's just one way of looking at that um, that doesn't pay respect to that other part of you. It's just looking at uh, what is theoretically optimal uh, without regard to the fact that you are still human. So that, that's kind of uh, agency is something uh, that, that you need to protect uh, and, and purposely pay attention to and cultivate, and that's building self-efficacy. And when you set yourself up for failure and you set yourself up with goals that are almost impossible to achieve, uh, that erodes self-efficacy. So I think that, that that's, that's something that is uh, often not considered. And again, it comes back to that long-term uh, perspective and mindset versus being a little more focused on the, the short-term outcomes. Yeah. One of the most tangible parts to me about all this, like all these things you've been saying is 
when you talk about like how you think about this stuff and how you feel about it, because the biggest reason why I do what I do now and trying to help people by putting out this podcast and posting things on Instagram and coaching is because for so long, so basically the, the story that I've told a lot of my podcasts is that starting out weightlifting at about 14, 15, you know, 10 years ago, it was like the prime bodybuilding.com very like everything was very bro sciencey sort of um, stuff that was like the only information I had and so I spent all these years kind of doing a little bit of everything that I thought was was necessary you know stuff like eat protein every two to three hours but I didn't know how much protein to eat um, do supersets and burnout sets but don't focus on progressive overload you know all the stuff that's pretty typical now of people that you hear that really got entrenched in that bro sciencey sort of stuff that was definitely me um, but the, the, the powerful thing that happened is one of, and I think I initially came across you on Mike Matthews podcast, cause that's something I've listened to for the last three years. Cause his books really helped me a lot because they were so pragmatic and actionable. Mm. So that's what changed everything for me. And then from there, I was able to kind of let things go mentally. And I was able to have a more kind of like we've talked about an integrated, um, bodybuilding physique development was part of my life, but it wasn't everything. And I could go out and have drinks with friends or have meals with my family. And I wouldn't be so just like have this cognitive dissonance of like feeling like I was doing something bad. And that might sound crazy to somebody who's never been there before, but like the feeling that I think that so many people experience, and especially I, I, I talk a lot about men on this podcast, because that's the generally most of the listeners are men. And I think that we don't necessarily get enough of a, a space and time and opportunity to talk about the the negative thoughts and feelings that men have around, around their bodies. Whereas I think it's a lot healthier among women that they're kind of generally more apt to talking about those feelings. But I think guys feel it just as deeply or deeper, especially when you talk about teenagers that see all these guys that are, you know, big and jacked and want to be like that and don't know how the getting divorced from all that, really intense cognitive strain and frustration is a bit been the most powerful thing for me. And so I, I feel like just what you're describing there is partly um, that to a higher degree, obviously, and people that are competing at the, at the level that your clients are. No. Yeah. I, I, um, I definitely think while the, the, the pressures from society to look a certain way are, are much higher on women I do think when they are present on men, and they certainly are, like if you were to look at uh, action figures and how they've changed over the last decades, uh, or just the advent of, of Instagram, um, while the, the pressures are less for men to look a certain way, uh, once you get into lifting, a lot of the messaging is, you will, it'll be better if you look a certain way. The jack dude who, who seems to be successful and happy in life um, you start exposing yourself to those, those images and those messages and that subtext at a higher frequency. And I think once you're in that, combine that with the fact that men generally uh, are not as good uh, or taught to in our societies to talk about their feelings. And sometimes it could even be viewed as a negative if they have a much more kind of old school traditionalist idea of what uh, masculinity is, then it can really get you, you, in, you in hot water. Um, and I, I think definitely finding, uh, the, finding the definition of masculinity, which, which includes being open and, and honest about your feelings, communicating, listening, and rather trying to patch them over and being a whole complete person who acknowledges uh, all, the, all those aspects and having the strength to talk about your vulnerabilities. I think that reframing uh, can be a complete game changer uh, for for, for dudes who are, who are struggling with this stuff uh, instead of, you know, just trying to suppress it, which typically goes sideways. Um, so no, I, I don't disagree. Yeah. I really like that. You know, like I said, I listened to the 3DMJ podcast a lot of the times and iron culture a lot. And you guys are always, it always strikes me that you're, you're not just intelligent about the science and application of, you know, whatever it is you guys are talking about, powerlifting, bodybuilding, whatever it is, but you also always bring in the intellectual and philosophical element. And that's what I've always appreciated the most because it's, for me, I see my vocation as being in health and fitness because it's a thing that extends to so many other areas of life. And if you truly integrate it, it can, and, and this is another point I, I wanted to definitely bring up, but like so many of the lessons you learn from weightlifting, from bodybuilding, whatever it is, apply directly to your life. So when you talk about long-term focus, you can look at that in terms of 
your relationships or your business or whatever it is. Or when you talk about things like, you know, the small things being the big things in the long term, that's another thing that extends, of course, towards a bodybuilding pursuit or something like that, but obviously towards other, other areas of your life too. And that's what I like the most about it. Hey guys, just wanted to mention real quick, if you're listening right now, you qualify as a podcast listener for a discount on my coaching services. My coaching services are for people looking to sustainably build the fittest and healthiest body they can. I offer custom workout plans as well as specialized nutrition advice and keep you accountable with weekly check-ins and actionable challenges. There's a money-back guarantee if you're unhappy at any time and there's no commitments. So please check it out. The link is in the show notes. No, absolutely. I, I sometimes uh, joke that what, what will initially draw you into kind of a bodybuilding lifestyle is the desire for aesthetics, mm-hmm. but the true benefits are being an aesthetic, uh, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, where you understand discipline, uh, delayed gratification, uh, and having a connection to something where the more you do it and the harder you work and the more time you spend in it, the rewards come further and further away into a smaller and smaller magnitude. So it forces you to cultivate it as a practice um, rather than a means to an end. Uh, so no, I 100% agree that it is a nice little uh, microcosm of life that I think we're almost taught the opposite of. Like if you look at uh, video games or the little, or, or social media, mm-hmm. there are things that try to give you an immediate reward to hook you. Um, while if you want to stick with bodybuilding, you have to get hooked by rewards that, like I said, come slower into a smaller magnitude over time. And that's life, you know, um, unless you actually are just an amazing gamer, <laughs> you don't get to make life out of games. But even then they learn it. like the difference between someone who's good at Halo or, or good at Doom mm-hmm. or, or good at Starcraft versus someone who is like a, an e-gamer pro um, is, is mild you know, um, and, and the amount of time and effort that they have to put in to get there. So I think anyone who wants to be successful in, in, in literally any domain of life uh, needs to kind of have that wiring. And I do think the weight room is a fantastic way uh, to, to show someone that that is like a graduated experience over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, kind of like we talked about earlier, like sometimes you don't quite understand how people do certain things or how they build these habits but over time, just because, you know, they've spent so much time lifting, bodybuilding, whatever it is, they build, I think a word you've used before is unconscious competence, where you just know what you're doing and you know that you should be doing it, but you don't necessarily articulate at any given time, oh, I'm doing this because of this to get this result. You just, it's, it's almost like, I mean, people talk about the 10,000 hour rule and something I've heard really interesting about that um, is from James Altucher, where he says, it's not necessarily the 10,000 hour rule, but it's more the 10,000 experiments rule. And the way that that kind of relates to my life is like, I, like I've said, I spent just about 10 years doing not necessarily entirely wrong things as far as bodybuilding, but definitely suboptimal things. And then eventually it just kind of all clicked. So it's just funny how it's not necessarily a product of how much time you put in, but I think eventually if I just kept my, my head at it for long enough, I was going to come across whatever, whatever catalyst that was that made me read Bigger, Leaner, Stronger by Mike Matthews. And then it was just this whole cascading effect of finding resources like 3DMJ and other, you know, evidence-based practitioners that are not, you know, just your typical, I don't know, pseudoscience kind of stuff that that was more common online five, 10 years ago, which luckily I think that if you just put the broad term evidence-based on it is becoming a lot more popular. Absolutely. And I think um, one thing that a lot of evidence-based practitioners don't realize and that frustrates them is that people typically don't come to us and stay until they've been pinballed around with the mm-hmm. BS, yep. you know? Um, and that experience, it's, it's almost, it's like really difficult for someone to start in this community with fitness unless they are already aware of kind of some of the concepts and rational skepticism. Like, uh, like I think of the times when I've been contacted out of the blue. Someone's like, hey, I just started lifting and I got your books so, to figure out how to do it. I find out they're also an engineer or they're like an academic in some other discipline, you know? So as, 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 an, as a, an example, um, once you've been in the fitness industry for a long time 
and you start getting exposed to like PubMed or the fact that everyone you're following is saying, here's what I think we should do. Oh, why? Well, it's based on the fact that all these studies show this. Mm-hmm. Now you, you start to change the way you seek out information, right? You don't just Google something and look for the first answer on Reddit. You'll be like, oh, like, I wonder if there are any studies on this. And now you mm-hmm. Google becomes like, studies and like dog training or something like that like oh shit maybe i shouldn't follow caesar milan you know like or whatever Mm -hmm. and we start to realize that the equivalent of bro science exists in like every field um so you know like when someone has an economics question or a political question or they have a question about uh climate change or, or or any kind of field of research or interest that they might have hopefully what they will have learned from being exposed to the science of fitness is I'm going to go look up the science on this rather than what might be just kind of the, the first hit on Google or, Mm -hmm. or that shit someone said at Thanksgiving type of deal. And um, so I think when people in the, in the evidence-based fitness community spend all of their time, like, you know, myth busting the BS fitness stuff, I kind of think that it's slightly a waste of resources. You know, mm-hmm. everyone in our community is going to nod their head and say yes. And the people who come to us are, have bounced around that already. And that's when they're ready for it. And that's when they're ready to look at things in a more rigorous manner. So not that we, we don't want to do that. I do think there's a good public service to that. But most people following us or listening to us aren't at that point you were when you read uh, Mike Matthews' mm-hmm. book exactly. to where you were looking for an alternative framing to how you find your information Mm -hmm. and it's funny because like it circles almost exactly back around to that question of like you know would you have told yourself anything different before you started competing well it's just such a difficult question because part of who you are now is because you've had this learning experience this growth experience because you've believed the wrong thing and i think back now it's like you know maybe maybe i'd go in my head oh man like i wish i could have discovered you know, a good role model back when I was like 14 or 15 and just started lifting weights. But I tend to think that if I didn't have that sort of painful experience of all this, all these things, doing all these difficult things that didn't work, I wouldn't be as passionate as I am now about the right things and how to try to communicate those to people. And so I think that that's another thing that's just such a microcosm for life. I don't really tend to ever say that I regret anything because you just, everything that, that happens to you, bad or good, just hopefully becomes a part of who you are moving into the future. And that's evidenced better than, than anywhere else in the, the bodybuilding space, I think. Yeah, that's well said. My other big question here was, I, I wanted to talk a little about recovery, like I mentioned um, in the DM mm-hmm. that I sent you, but I, I'm most curious, just a little bit more general than that, when you know all these different things, and like you said, you've, you've studied so much and talked to so many different individuals, how do you kind of stop from being like a nihilist almost where it's like, I don't know, just, just train well and, and eat well. I don't know, because some people do well on fasting. Some people do well on keto. Some people do well on high intensity lifting. Some people do well on high volume. Like if knowing all these different things, how do you hold all these, not necessarily differing ideas, but just um, divergent ideas almost in your head and apply them to your own life and help other people apply them? That's a good question. And I think it's very easy for someone who is consuming a lot of information that comes from scientific inquiry, but is not themselves someone who has done scientific inquiry to feel exactly what you described and not nihilism. Um, And I think this comes from maybe not fully grasping, not, not like intellectually grasping, but, but like integrating the idea of what science is doing. So, when you start to understand that science essentially just tells you about on average for most people, what seems to work better rather than actually telling you what is the truth. Um, The most common statistical methods is that we have a hypothesis and we try to disconfirm it, not we prove something. Mm -hmm. So the concept of proof actually falls on a sliding scale. um, And sometimes you can only have a certain level of evidence for something like, you know, we always bag on epidemiology, for example, but we're never going to have a randomized controlled trial on eating broccoli for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So that's the best it's ever going to get in that field. So, so proof that vegetables are healthy is always going to be relied on these prospective long-term epidemiological investigations that is looking at associations and trying to control for confounders. 
proof for something like does energy balance work though could come in the form of you know a, a metabolic ward study where we provide food or don't provide food and we have tight control over everything um, so there is I think once you understand that and you understand, okay, what am I trying to get out of science? It's to kind of chip away at the stone to see what the sculpture is starting to look like underneath mm -hmm. rather than just provide me answers. Um, and so, for example, you mentioned how individuals respond very differently. The individual response is something that the scientific method is great for, but the published literature is typically not helpful for, right? So if I've got a study and, and the better the study is means the higher the sample size and the more statistical power we have to say that an effect was significant. That completely comes down to measuring a large number of people and seeing a consistent effect, right? Um, but even when you have a large effect that is consistent, when you're talking about like an exercise or nutrition intervention, there are gonna be some people who respond contrary uh, sometimes 180 degrees or sometimes just to a lower magnitude or sometimes just there's no real difference um, if there was a crossover, for example, with the other condition uh, to what the group average significant finding was. So sure, for example, uh, higher volumes to a point seem to be associated with slightly greater levels of hypertrophy compared to say a moderate or a low volume. Uh, but there's 100% uh, a, a not small minority of people who will do better on moderate and then a still sizable minority who will do better on low volume compared to moderate or high, right? So I think if you're looking for binary truth or proof kind of, kind of ideology behind it, like is high volume good or not um, for everyone, then you're going to fall into those nihilistic traps. But instead, if you're looking for general principles, uh, to start and then understanding that the scientific method is what you use on yourself or your clients to figure out what works for them, uh, things start to, to fit together much better. Mm -hmm. So that means basically monitoring things, uh, doing things multiple times to see if the effect is repeated and it's not some other confounder in your life and only changing one thing at a time so that you can build a high quality number of observations, anecdotes, that then can inform future progress. And you know, hey, this works for me. Now, to, to answer your, your question more directly of, of what do I do in my life being exposed to all this research? I look for things that the signal is certainly outpaced noise, mm -hmm. right? When we see something that has really like shown, like it's, it's easy in supplement research, right? Once we've got the vast majority of trials from different labs showing an effect that is reasonably large on something I care about, I go, yeah, why not? You mm -hmm. know, those are few and far between. Uh, when we look at things like trends in, in volume or frequency or things like that, I find that interesting, but it doesn't necessarily impact what I do immediately. Um, and a lot of those things tend to go in more intuitive directions anyway, if you understand kind of the fund fundamental principles. And it's just that we're trying to figure out in what contexts they may or may not uh, be relevant. So I think, I think what you should be looking for is overarching principles first, uh, understanding physiology, and then having, like I said at the start of this uber long tirade, uh, an understanding of the, uh, the fundamental purpose of what science is, and then fundamentally how we observe things in the real world that we are, can only do uh, you know, like a single study, case studies on ourselves or our clients and how to use the scientific method appropriately there. Um, and then finally, I would say understanding that like those experiences and published literature do two different things. I think it's often like bro science, AKA like experience is what people are often talking about many times, like the collection of anecdotes versus science. And I think that's a really poor uh, way of looking at it. It's a false dichotomy because all you have to do to take use of anecdotes is like I said, try to make them high quality. And secondly, don't try to describe the mechanism why. Mm -hmm. Oh I, man, I seem to do better on high reps, period. That's all. Okay, then keep doing high reps. Don't then say, oh, I think that's because I got a lot more slow switch fibers. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore I need to do this, this, and this, and this, and then go down the bro science rabbit hole. Yeah. That's where your, your average athlete on Twitter or your, your kind of bro sciencey coach or the, uh, the stereotypical pro bodybuilder who doesn't do science gets it wrong is they say something hashtag science E to describe an anecdote they had. And then that leads to down this rabbit hole of false assumptions. If you yeah. have an observation and it's repeated and it works, great. All you need to know is that it worked. Keep doing that. Mm -hmm. um, unless it is directly contradicted by, by hard scientific fact, like, hey, when I eat in a surplus, I lose weight. You're probably not in a surplus. You know, like there's, mm -hmm. there, there's a limit to this, this kind of ideology. Um, but I think when we do repeated observations on ourselves or our clients, we don't need to necessarily try to infer beyond what we can. Uh, and that is a, a different tool and a different part of the process than kind of collecting our understanding of principles and, and big, big confirmed data like multiple meta-analyses, 10 studies on the topic, et cetera, uh, that all seem to point in a similar direction to help us figure out where we kind of want to start or maybe give us a few tools in the tool belt if we come into you know, a specific problem uh, from, from coaching. Mm -hmm. And it like reminds me of something I also said earlier about like the brain making up stories you know, I'm, I'm interested in neuroscience, not that I'm advanced by any means, but I, I have an understanding of how, you know, your, your prefrontal cortex wants to make stories, wants to make sense of things. And so you might go kind of like you said, oh, wow, this, this low volume approach must be the best thing because I'm, I'm trying it right now and it's working the best for me. But then not think about the fact that maybe your stress is lower than it's ever been, or maybe you really just enjoy the way it feels. So you're getting to the gym just 5% more than you used to be. And it's just all these things that you have to think about as far as adherence and enjoyment. Like one of the um, good examples for, for like, as far as my life, you know, when you talk about meal timing, that has to be like at the top of the, of the bro science-y pyramid, hall of fame, so to speak, whatever, you know, is every, eating meals every two to three hours. And so I can remember as a teenager, I almost had this like timer in my head of like, oh, I had to eat every two to three hours, had to eat protein. And now that I know that that's one of those things that can be helpful, but it's probably not one of the most important things. It's so freeing to just be able to just kind of eat generally three meals a day, maybe a snack, know that I'm falling within these parameters I'm trying to fall within. And it's one of those things that I don't necessarily have to really strictly track because I understand that from eating similar things each day, I'm going to fall in line with my goals. And it's really nice for me to not have to worry about. Whereas other things I might more strictly track as far as weightlifting volume and when weights lifted and stuff like that. And so you kind of have to, in my mind, I, I would go crazy if I had to track too many different things. And so you kind of have to choose what, what are the scientific evidence-based sort of things that you're going to track? And what are the things you're going to try and again, just like put on autopilot, put on, you know, unconscious competence, like we talked about. Yeah. So that's basically the entire motivation of why I originally created a YouTube series and what eventually became my books, um, created the muscle and strength nutrition and training pyramids. Mm -hmm. And the, the whole concept of a pyramid is just that it's a hierarchy. So we went from the base, the foundation being the most important to the top, uh, being the least important. Um, and I created that because a consistent issue I had that I found when consulting with people on like one-off Skype calls that I did for man, probably three to four days a week uh, for like three years from say 2011 till uh, 2014, 2015 is that everyone knew everything and they got it mostly right, but they were completely paralyzed by all the various things they knew. And like you said, um, they didn't have any ability to, to determine whether, um, you know, timing their pre-workout carbohydrates was more or less than important than their total protein intake, uh, or whether, you know, having some type of, uh, having creatine post-workout rather than pre-workout was mm -hmm. more important than their rate of weight loss or things like that. And they ended up with just basically trying to juggle like a hundred balls in the air and most of them hitting the ground and often important ones. Um, and just being overwhelmed. So my motivation was to go, all right, let's, let's take all these concepts and help people understand what is the most uh, solidly well-determined things that are, are not under question, you know, like the structure of the pyramid, I don't think it's going to change. You know, um, there are aspects of it with the information contained within each uh, level might, might change a little bit. But nothing is going to happen where all of a sudden I go, you know, actually, 
meal frequency, timing, refeeds, diet breaks, that's more important than protein. That's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> so, um, and you know, so, so like, like, like that, and the same thing, like top of the nutrition pyramid, the supplements that come out, if we are talking about supplements and not like drugs are never going to be game changers to the point where they're going to come down of being least important. Um, but that's not the way even science minded bloggers, especially at the time when I wrote, uh, and, and YouTubers was the most common forms of information like in 2012. Um, and even today, uh, that's not the way the information is presented. You got to have hot content. You got to have borderline clickbait titles. You yep. got to have things that, that hook people in. So the thing you've forgotten, the thing you didn't know about, uh, did you know, like, is this thing you forgot about killing your games? You mm -hmm. know, all those various stories we see as blog titles or YouTube titles. Or like and this one food, something exactly. like that. Exactly. And some of it's bullshit. But let's say you actually do have a good BS sensor and you are following a lot of good content providers, but they are still providing all this information as though it is important and hyperbolic. And, and they, you know, to some degree, you kind of have to play that game. But if you're doing it right, hopefully once the video actually starts, you put right. it in context. Yeah, I agree. And I found there wasn't enough people putting it into the context at that time. Um, and people came away with exactly, like I said, juggling 100 balls. So uh, the whole reason I wrote the pyramids was to help people understand like what they should be focusing their time and energy on. And to use a very common analogy, it's the idea of, okay, I give you a glass and it's your potential. And the more you can fill it up, the better. And I give you a couple of big rocks, uh, some small, some, some medium-sized stones, and then a bunch of sand. The only way to fit it all in is by focusing on the big rocks first and the medium rocks and then the sand. And if you fill your glass with sand first, you're never going to even get the big rocks or small rocks in and you will be shortchanging yourself. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's kind of uh, exactly what you were talking about and, and the motivation there. And, um, behind my books and my, and my videos, uh, because that is just so common. Yeah. I have kind of a funny story. Like you mentioned, you know, creatine there post-workout. Like I, for a while was trying to separate my creatine and caffeine. Cause I'd heard, you know, there's, there's a little bit less of an effect with creatine um, when you're taking caffeine. And then I found that like, because I would just forget to do it, I would just not be taking my creatine. And I was like, okay, well, let, let me think about this. Is it really, if, if, if I'm getting 2% more effective by not taking my creatine with caffeine, but I'm also forgetting it one or two days a week, then what difference does it make? I should just do it with my caffeine and take the maybe one to 2% less effective, um, you know, results that I'm probably not ever going to notice. And it's another one of those things where like, it's so beneficial, especially for me, like I'm someone who's always been really just like in my head and just like thinking about lots of things at once. So the more things I can take off my plate, like I wake up and every day at the same time, I have a similar breakfast and I have a handful of vitamins that I choose to take and my creatine. And then that's just out of the way, a nutritious breakfast, the, the vitamins I want, the creatine, and whether it would be a little bit more optimal this time or that time in the day, I, I just let it go because it's so minuscule that it, it won't even make a difference in my life. Yeah. And honestly, most of the time it's the people who obsess the most. And like you said, are in their head and focus on so many things. And I speak from experience here who are the exact people who should not be doing that mm -hmm. because it leads them towards the point where they are actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, they're often fixing problems that don't need to be fixed or trying to optimize things that they don't fully understand. I'm going to change my form to see I, I can do this. And then forgetting that, that, uh, that, that they've now changed something else that they didn't intend. So unintended consequences become a big, big set of problems for these people. Um, and it's super common. So yeah, I think kind of understanding everything through a lens of importance uh, rather than seeing everything as, because I think that, that that's the mentality, like the whole optimal thing, it's almost this black and white mentality. It's either I'm doing it the best I can, or I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's not that you don't do it at all, but you're, you're constantly seeking to optimize things to the point where you are putting a disproportionate level of effort, time, and energy that does have a cost uh, into things that can only have an immeasurable or negligible impact on the outcome at best when that could be going elsewhere. Um, and there's a ton of data now, you mentioned you're into neuroscience, uh, to where we know uh, that there is a cost to focusing on one thing and it is at the expense of other things. Um, 
you know, if you, you have a whole bunch of mental fatigue, it actually can negatively affect your workout. You know, people who experience more life stress make slower strength gains yeah. and on and on and on and on. Not to mention that is just, we're not that great at being able to take all these little fine data points and make the correct assumption. Uh, going back to neuroscience, there's a, a great book, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel oh, yeah. Kahneman. I love that book. Yeah, and he, he describes a set of cognitive biases as what you see is all there is. So if you're focused on something because you read a book about it uh, or a blog post or whatever, uh, let's say you read a blog post about um, you know, beta alanine and beetroot supplementation and you got super convinced that it's going to be a game changer for you because uh, of nitric oxide production. So you start supplementing with these, but you just simply weren't aware that taking an oral mouthwash completely negates your ability to convert it into nitric oxide and you get no benefit. And you notice you start to start taking the supplement. Um, maybe you are surprised by not getting an effect. So you start focusing on, 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 on your diet and you think, oh, I'm not getting enough fruits and vegetables. Or you start focusing on your sleep patterns and all this other stuff. You go around on this, uh, on this red herring hunt to try to fix all these problems that aren't problems, changing things. And in reality, you didn't see the fact that you were taking mouthwash as a potential confounder. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't know it was an issue. And that happens all the time, both positively and negatively. Um, you'll often hear bodybuilders or just any general gym bros or, or sisses who will start doing a new program, start taking a new supplement, change their diet, and whichever one they're focused on more is what they will ascribe any positive outcome to. Mm -hmm. And that anecdote, which could be false, will follow them the rest of their life. Now, in science, these are called confounders. Uh, and the reason why, no matter how good of a quality uh, an observational study is, it will never, never ascend to being as valuable or as high of a value of piece of evidence as a controlled trial is because there are so many potential confounding variables that we can't control for them all. So instead, what we do is we just have two groups who do the same thing, and we have to get enough people that the statistics themselves just having enough different people in these two groups so that all the unknown uh, unknowns, all the con potential confounders we're not even aware of are averaged out and that we get this similar amount of confounding in both groups. And that if the power of the intervention is enough, we can see a difference. Mm -hmm. So even when you're talking about the best scientists in the world and super good fields, that's, they still have to operate under that paradigm because there are, there are so many things that could be impacting what we're doing that we don't even know exist to control for them. Yeah. So if you as an individual are trying to control everything instead of actually understanding that, that paradigm uh, and being able to operate under a set of priorities, uh, then you're going to be experiencing a lot of folly and frustration. Yeah. And I think what speaks even more towards just the, the, the more important aspect being how you can apply this knowledge to your life is I've heard um, someone, maybe it was someone commented, or maybe I heard um, Danny Kahneman in an interview, but they basically him just saying, you know, I'm not that much better than the average person at spotting these cognitive um, or the, these, these fallacies in my own life. And he's, he literally wrote the book on it. And so you have to have in my life that the, the, the takeaway from that is like, try to put in constant reminders um, to yourself of where you might be falling short. And above all else, just try to stick to whatever routine you can stick to. And that's going to involve in enjoyment. That's going to involve how it works around other parts of your life. And so I think just the takeaway as we, we wind down here is figure out what works for you. And there's lots of things to observe and lots of things to learn. But what matters most is just your own personal lifestyle and consistency. I would totally agree. Well, I think we'll leave it on that note. And Eric, I'll let you have any closing words if you have anything else to say anywhere else that you'd like people to find you on the interwebs no yeah no it's just an honor to be on thanks for having me and if anyone wants to find any like additional content i would check out 3dmusclejourney.com that is the number three the letter d uh, musclejourney.com from there you can find uh, the podcast you mentioned the 3d muscle journey podcast which is very much focused on competitive bodybuilding and occasionally powerlifting as well but I think a lot of life lessons for anyone who's serious about their goals. Uh, from there, you can also find our free blog posts and there's uh, links to my books from there, the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, as well as the monthly research review I do with Greg Knuckles, Eric Trexler, and Mike Zerdos, monthly applications and strength sport. Uh, and outside of that, I think the only other content that people might find interesting, especially if they're into the philosophical or intellectual side of lifting, mm -hmm. the Iron Culture with myself and Omar Isaf. 
Uh, and then for more like daily content, you can follow me on Instagram at Helms3DMJ. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the Iron Culture podcast, so highly recommend. Thanks, Eric, for coming on today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. If you would, please take a minute out of your day to review and rate the podcast as well as subscribe. It would really help me out a lot. And if you're on Instagram, go ahead and follow me on there at jakeparker.fit and screenshot and tag me when you're listening to the show. I'll be sure to share it. And thank you personally on there.